All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis 37. You're going to need Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 this morning. We did all of our like deep theology, kind of more academic. We moved that to Sunday school today because I knew we were going to have visitors and I didn't want them to be too overwhelmed or shocked or like what in the world's going on. So we're going to make the sermon much more sermon-like, if I, if I can do that. I know I have a tendency to do more like just go into deep teaching, but uh, we'll try to accomplish this. Now, if you've been paying any attention to the podcast that I just mentioned, one of the things we do for our podcast is what we call Bible study exercise, so that each week we dedicate an entire week to one passage of Scripture, right? There's Bible study curriculum that people can access. There's the Bible memory app to help you memorize part of the scriptures that we're studying. And then it's one podcast after another, after another, after another, after another, dealing with that passage of scripture, going as in-depth as we possibly can. And over the past few weeks, we have been in the book of Genesis, right? Genesis 37, Genesis 39. That's where we have been. So I'm going to take some of what we've discussed And I'm going to bring it all together and really focus in on one specific aspect of it that I think will be very important. And if you were here for Sunday school, the theology that we established in in Sunday school is going to, in a sense, be the answer to the problem that's going to be presented to us as we make it through this passage, this section of scripture. Does that make sense? All right, so let's do this. Starting a couple of weeks ago for the Bible study exercise, we introduced, or I should say I introduced, the subject or the concept of a spiritual pitfall. All right? And we think of a pitfall, you're thinking of something that it, there's a pit and it's camouflaged, right? You don't really see that it's there, right? It's, there's a flimsy covering over it and you walk over it and you step in and the next thing you know, you find yourself where? In the bottom in a pit, trapped, okay? And it can happen at any time from a spiritual perspective. Let me give you an example from real life so that this will make sense. At one point in my childhood, I was living with a different family once again because of all the problems in my home, all right? And I was living with a family out, if you go towards uh, Coronado's camp, there's a place called Arrowhead Mountain Arrowhead Ranch, okay? Whatever it's called, all right? Okay, and so I lived out there. And the family I lived with had about, I guess it was about 15 acres of land, right? And the land was really weird because it basically, you you left the back of the house and then you just had your, you know, trees and all these things. And it kind of just went up this incline to the top of this, wouldn't call it a mountain, I guess in Texas we may call it a mountain, but this large hill that you could could finally reach to the top of and that's where their property line ended. And of course, we, we, you know, we didn't really care about nature more than what we cared about was motorcycles, right? And I'm like, this is great. We can ride motorcycles all over this place, right? So one day we're riding motorcycles. Everything's great. And there was an area where there was uh, just the right kind of incline with the dirt that we could jump over this like open area. And we would, we jumped over that thing, I don't know, 50, 100 times. Never thought anything about it. Just like a safe area seemed comp- perfectly okay, right? To this one day, I'm there and I hit the jump and I come off the back of the motorcycle. And I land down in this like pit. And I'm like, okay, well, that's no good. The motorcycle kind of crashes over in the other incline. It, the engine dies and I'm laying there. I'm like, okay, I'm okay. And I get ready to move and guess what I hear? It sounded like thousands of rattlesnakes. It was like, I just, I landed in basically a pit of rattlesnakes. And I just like, well, where did these guys come from? Why didn't they announce their presence to me before I decided to jump this? Now, probably if we saw the rattlesnakes there, we still would have jumped it because that would be more dangerous. But we never saw the danger. And so I'm just laying there going, okay, uh, what do I do? What do the people with me were like, don't move. Just don't move, right? And then they go back and try to get a gun. And I'm like, don't shoot while I'm laying here. Okay, finally, I'm able to get out of the situation. And then they start shooting snakes. And I'm just like, well, I just wanted to ride motorcycles. And I'm never going outside again, okay? So, because, but it looked like it was okay, right? It looked safe. And your spiritual life and your Christian life, there's plenty of times that everything seems to be going fine in life. And then... You step on it, and then you're in it, and then they're surrounded, in a sense, by rattlesnakes. Allegorically speaking, okay? But you're there. Now, one of the things that can cause, I think, so much just utter destruction of someone's faith 
is the difficulties, pain, tragedy, and suffering that one can encounter in life. Don't know if you realize this. Life doesn't always work out perfectly. I've told the story, one of the things that messed me up so much in my early Christian life, I became a, a, a Christian as a teenager. Everything's great. Then everything in my home gets even worse. So I have to live with a different family. I'm at school. All of a sudden, they come overhead and say, hey, you need to go to the principal's office. And I'm like, well, what did I do? I haven't done anything wrong since I've become a Christian. I've, I've been trying to be good. They must have figured out I did this and this. I'm thinking I'm in all kinds of trouble. And I get there and like, you need to get to the hospital as soon as possible. And I get to the hospital and my mother's dead. Now, I wasn't expecting that as a teenager. I wasn't expecting that. And my thought was, wait a minute, I've, I've become a Christian And this is what happens? And it led to lots of frustration, lots of bitterness, lots of anger, and of course, everything that took place. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but you you understand that it can happen at any point. A little bit of suffering, a little bit of pain, and you feel like your life just, you don't understand God, you don't understand your Christianity, you don't know what's the purpose. But let me tell you this. You're not the first person to ever feel that way, and you're not the first person to ever go through difficult circumstances. So let's go to Genesis 37 because we have the story of an individual. I don't know if you're aware of this. He faces some pretty difficult situations. And we're going to outline the situations, but what do we want? Here's the thesis this morning. What's the solution to this? We're all going to step on the flimsy covering of life and we're going to find ourselves in a pit with pain. It can be horrible tragedy, horrible tragedy, or it can just be the pressures of life Whatever it can be, you can find yourself there going, forget it. I'm just, you know what? This, this, whole, this doesn't make any sense to me. Where is God? God didn't do what I wanted. I'm sick of all of this. I, I, because I've expressed some of those same feelings in my life. So wh- what's the solution here? Well, does the text even give us a solution? Well, let's just go and establish this person's life because it's pretty interesting. Let's go to Genesis 37 where we're introduced to the family. Genesis 37. And if you've been following along with the Bible study exercises, you know we've covered this in great detail, but you'll get the idea. All right? Genesis 37, let's start in verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. So we're introduced to Jacob, right? These are the generations of Jacob. And then we have the name. Joseph being 17 years old. We have Joseph. So we are going to focus on the life of Joseph, a 17-year-old. Please note, a 17-year-old, right? A teenager, okay? And we're going to look at everything that happens in his life. I can't speak for you, but when I read this story, no matter how many times I've read it, how many times I've studied it, Bible College, Bible Institute, doesn't matter where, every time I'm like, well, glad I wasn't Joseph. Because I wouldn't have ended, the chapter, the book would not end the way it ends with Joseph. It would have ended with probably a lot of things that I could not repeat here and a lot of attempts to do things that would not be right. Okay, you can look at me like you're super spiritual, but I have a feeling you would be in the same boat. So let's, let's see how this starts. So here's Joseph, he's 17 years old. That's great, right? He's out feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad of, with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto him unto his father their evil report. So here's Joseph. He's out feeding the flock with his brothers and clearly he sees his brothers doing something wrong. Now, if you go back into the early church, they make lots of speculation of what he supposedly saw, right? They accuse the brothers of bestiality. They accuse them of sodomy. They accuse them of all kinds of things. The church fathers just, they just went crazy. Like, let's write down every sin in the world. That's what they were committing. We don't know what they were doing. We don't even know if it was that bad. But Joseph decides he's going to do what? He's going to run home and say, Dad, 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 guess what the brothers were doing, right? Now, whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, he goes and tells on his brothers. And we kind of get some insight maybe why he's so quick to go tell on his brothers. And why is he so quick to tell on his brothers? Verse 3, Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Joseph, his dad's what? favorite. And when you're the favorite, what's one thing you can always do? Tell on your brothers or sisters because the parents are always going to listen to whom? You, right? I'm the favorite. And what's one good way to always stay the favorite? 
Let them know how bad your siblings are. Right? Hey, you chose the right one because these other kids are complete garbage. Right? Does that make sense? Right? Take advantage of it. If you're the favorite, take advantage of it. Joseph kind of says takes advantage of it a little bit. Correct? So they tell. What else? Not only is he the favorite, what else does he have? A coat of many colors. So not only is he the favorite, his dad makes him a coat of many colors so he can walk around going, look at me. Look at me. You're, you don't have a coat like this. I do, right? He makes a garment demonstrating his what? His status. He's the favorite. I just want you to understand how great it is to be the favorite, right? It's great to be the favorite. Everybody wants to be the favorite, right? You, you, he probably, his curfew was probably different than everyone else's. He can do whatever he wants. He's the favorite, right? I just want you to see how great the situation is. Because if you don't understand how great the situation is, then everything else that happens in the story doesn't have the same emotional impact. Does that make sense? Right? So he's the favorite. He, everything's great. Okay? He has a coat of many colors. Right? And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they... Uh-oh. Favorite son, but hated by whom? His brothers. Now, we can go on and read the rest of this. We know what happens. Joseph has some dreams, doesn't he? He has some dreams. And we understand these dreams to be coming from whom? Oh, wait a minute. He's not only the favorite of his earthly father. He seems to be getting a special insight from God himself. And you talk about really now thinking you're everything, right? Okay, hey, my dad loves me and God gives me visions and dreams, right? And he runs and tells his brothers the content of these visions and dreams, right? And how, what's the basic summary of these dreams? Hey, guys, I had this dream and guess what happened, right? I'm there and all of you are going to bow down in front of me. Isn't that wonderful? And they hate him. Even more, the text says. Oh, he has another dream. What's the next dream? Everything's going to bow down to him. The moon, the stars, everything's going to bow down to him. Right? And, there, and even his dad is kind of like, what are you doing? He rebukes him according to the text, right? And like, what, what, why are you doing this? Now, I know we could read through all of this, but if we don't, we'll, we'll never get, we'll be here till five in the afternoon, okay? And then people will get upset with me, okay? So I have to, I have to summarize. It's all right there in Genesis 37, okay? And we've covered this in the Bible study exercise. So even his dad's kind of like, man, what are you doing? But his dad realizes, man, maybe something's going on here, right? But his brothers do what? They, I love how the text keeps saying, they hate him even more. They hate him. Like, I thought I hated you more than ever, but now I hate you even more. Like, I don't know how much more hate can be, but they were really getting upset with him. Really getting upset. So the brothers do what? They go off to feed the flock again, which is kind of interesting because his dad's like, hey, go check on your brothers, right? And Joseph goes looking for them and he can't find them. It's almost like they're like, hey, hey, don't let Joseph know where we are. We don't want Joseph showing up. So, but while they're all feeding the flock, someone obviously comes up with an idea. Hey, you know Joseph? Like, they basically, show of hands, does any of you like him? No. How much do you not like him? Someone suggests they do what? Kill him. Now, when you go from the favorite son to your brothers wanting to kill you, that's that's a bad situation. Now, we read it, and it's, and I'll just remember, sometimes when we read these stories, we read these stories in a very one-dimensional way. All right? Put yourself in that situation. Those are your brothers. And now they want you to die. Not figuratively speaking. Literally. Your own brothers want you to die. Joseph doesn't have a clue. He's still walking around in his coat of many colors, Right? He's off running around. He, he's going to go find his brother still wearing the coat of many colors, right? He's, so he's, he thinks everything's great. I, I, it's almost as if he doesn't even understand how much they hate him. He seems oblivious to it, right? He seems oblivious. So he goes out. He's, he's going to find his, his brothers. And look what happens. Verse 18 of chapter 37. I know I did a lot of... 
paraphrasing everything. And when they saw him afar off, even, even before he came near unto them, they did what? They conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, behold, the dreamer cometh. That's mocking. Oh, here comes the dreamer. I wonder what dream he's going to have for us today. Is he going to tell us that we're going to bow down five times? Right? They, they, they're not happy with him. And so what did they decide to do? Come now, therefore, let us slay him, cast him into some pit. You see why we talked about spiritual pitfalls for the last couple of weeks? And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And one brother says, do we have to kill him? I mean, I don't like him either, but do we have to go that far? And so what did they come up with an idea? They leave him in the pit, and what do they ultimately come up with? This great plan, a great plan. Well, hey, if we kill him, we don't get anything. I've got an idea. Let's sell him as a slave. Now, I want you to realize, when you go from favorite son to laying in a pit, hearing your brothers decide if they're going to kill you or let you live, and then the next thing you know, you're sold as a slave? I don't know about you, that changes your perspective on life really, really quick. And where, where, where do you think? What would be your thinking? Just, just Now remember, I know we're in church. We're supposed to give church answers, but I can't stand that, right? No church answers are allowed in church, okay? Because we're not being real. What would your thinking be? I'm, I'm laying in that pit. Okay, yeah, your first thinking is, if I can get back to dad, they're in trouble. My thinking would be, hey, God, those dreams, they're not bowing down right now. I I, I guess you are too spiritual to think that way. I'd be thinking that way. I'd be like, God, God, hey, did you forget? I'm in a pit here, and it sounds like the plan doesn't, it, it doesn't sound good. It's not working. I mean, I'd be down in the pit. Hey, guys, you're supposed to be bowing down in front of me. I'd be trying to remind them of the dream, right? I don't know what I would be saying. Okay? I'd be reminding God of that. I would be reminding everyone. The people who bought me as a slave, I'd be like, hey, no, 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 no. People are supposed to bow down to me. What are you doing, right? I would be telling everyone. But guess what? It wouldn't change my circumstance. He's in a bad circumstance. Would everyone agree this is not a good situation? Okay, so he is sold into slavery. He, he, who is he sold to? Chapter 37, starting in verse 28. He ultimately gets bought by the Ishmaelites, correct? All right, then we have a, we have a, we have kind of, and if you go to verse 36, 37, 30, uh, 36, and the Midianites sold him into Egypt under Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. So he, he gets passed around and he's now going to be, where is he going to go? Into Egypt. And I love how the text does something. I love the way the text does something. That's chapter 37, right? What happens in chapter 38? I think this is done on purpose. Is Joseph mentioned in 38? Like, it's like when you're watching a TV show and you're like, wait, 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 you can't end the, you can't end the story here. I'm like, Come back next season. We'll start next season. And, or the next time Netflix gets the series, it'll be two years from now. Like, I'm going to forget. Like, Don't end it here. And it's like, what, what's just happened? I love that. Why, why do I love it? Because isn't that how life works? You're suffering. What's going on with the rest of life? It keeps going on. It keeps going on. Life does not stop. It does not stop. I, I, when, I, when after my mother died, everything went downhill for me. Bad, 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 bad. And about 20 miles that way, in the middle of nowhere, on about a 3,000 acre ranch, I was living with a different family. And I couldn't take it anymore. Even though I was a Christian, I was like, couldn't take it anymore. So I went into the room took the gun, went to the floor, knelt down on the floor, 
put the gun to my head, said, Father, forgive me for what I'm about to do, got ready to shoot myself, and the daughter of the family walked in and stopped it. And I had to spend eight weeks in a psychiatric hospital. Guess what was going on while I was in the psychiatric hospital? I was in a psychiatric hospital, and everybody else was just living their life. Now, you could sit there and go, but you need to be thinking about me, right? But everybody has their own lives, their own problems, their own difficulties. In a sense, it just seems so weird that, look, why did they, why did they skip Joseph here? Because Joseph is a slave while you're reading about someone else's life. Which could give that sense of what? What does it give that feeling of? What about Joseph? And, and being forgotten. He went from the favorite to a slave to forgotten. Man, can that cause some problems in your spiritual life? Cause some problems in mine, I can tell you. Right? Some major problems. Okay, now, all of a sudden we turn to chapter 39. Chapter 39. And you think the story is going to be better, but, well, some crazy things are going to happen here. All right, here we go. I'm trying to determine how much here I go through, but I want you, if we don't get, look, if we don't get the sense of the story, then everything we're going to talk about at the end is not going to matter. So just be patient with me, okay? All right. I'm trying not to go as long as I typically do because I don't want our, our visitors to have, you know, shock or something. Okay, so, all right, here we go. Chapter 39, verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, the story picks back up. All right, okay. Finally, Joseph's like, about time, right? You know, he's almost speaking to the narrator. About time someone for, for remembers me. Right? But it's like, but life goes on. But when it, when it picks the story back up, where's Joseph? He's brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. What I love about chapter 39, verse 1, is like, do you remember, you've probably seen this, you watch a show on Netflix, and when the next season starts, it starts with a recap, right? Here's the recap. Hey, remember Joseph? He was sold. Okay, it's just weird, like, it picks the story up, like, hey, reminds you of where he was, which is just so much like life, Right? sometimes you've got to remind somebody of your problems because everybody else has moved on. Verse 2, and the Lord, well, and, okay, this next verse bothers me so much, but okay. The next verse says, and the Lord was with Joseph. Now, I wanted to skip that, but I'll just go ahead and put it here. Some people read, I know most preachers read that and go, isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? I don't read it that way. Okay? I know I'm going to, I know I always say things that bothers people, but I'm I'm sorry. If I'm Joseph and and I hear the narrator say, and God was with me, if he's with me, why am I a slave? If God is with me, doesn't he have the ability to, I don't know, prevent me from being a slave? Yes? I mean, come on. It's okay to say that. I know somebody like, I kind of want to say that, but it's, I'm in church, and I think now I'll get struck by lightning. I, I, that's the way I read the text. When I read the text, I'm like, wait a minute. God, if you're with Joseph, I think he can use a little bit of assistance right now. Right? He went from favorite son to a slave in a foreign land. He doesn't know what his father thinks. Obviously, he knows his brothers utterly hate him. Can, can you feel that betrayal? Can you, I mean, look, we get upset if we wake up in the morning and we're like, I'm going to get a bowl of Cheerios and you find out that your sibling ate it before you and you're like, I'm betrayed, right? It's horrible. They ate the last bowl of Cheerios. Mom, mom, do you know what happened? Right, and we're on Twitter going, no, you can't believe what they did to me, the injustice. Hey, you start marching around the kitchen. You know, no justice, no peace, because this is horrible. This is, I think he would feel a little bit more stronger about the situation, right? He's a slave, but God is with him? Just keep that in mind, right? Because that's that's crazy to me. That's crazy. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. 
And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. That drives me absolutely crazy. All right, God is with me. I'm the one who's been messed over and you're going to prosper my slave owner? <laughs> Who wants to be prospered in this story? If I'm, I want to be prospered. And you know how I want to be prospered? By being set free, go back to my brothers and say, bow before me! That's what I would want. I don't want to be like, oh, great, thank you, Lord. Prosper my slave owner. That's a great idea. That's just wonderful. This is awesome. I, 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 would, I would be getting very confused by God's actions at this point. It gets worse. And Joseph found grace in his sight. That's good. And he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. All right, so he's a slave. Now, please note, we read that, and we're like, oh, what a wonderful thing. No, he's a slave. He's not getting paid for his job. Okay, everybody understand that? It's not like, oh, he's moving up the the corporate ladder. He's going to be a CEO now. He's a slave. And now, guess what has been put upon him? The responsibility for everything. That's a lot of responsibility as a slave. Right? If you mess up in your job, what happens? Well, I was in the military. Nothing happens, right? Okay. I mean, they just, I mean, it takes an act of Congress to get rid of us, right? Okay. They got to write an LOC, then an LOR, then an Article 15. It takes, you know, by that point, you're already retired, okay? Like, it, but in some jobs in the civilian world, you may get, or you could be fired, which would be great for if you're Joseph. Fire me. The only problem is if something goes wrong for him, he may get killed. So we can read that. In one hand, it's a good thing, but it's good for the slave owner. It's not so much good for Joseph because he's getting more and more responsibility. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Please note again, who's getting blessed? The Egyptian house. The people who own you. That just seems so wrong to me. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had and in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he knew not aught he had saved the bread which he did eat. In other words, he gave so much control to Joseph, he doesn't even know what he has. All he knows is what? Food shows up. Doesn't know how much food he has. Doesn't know where the food comes from. He just knows that Joseph's taking care of all of it. Think of all the right responsibility. He goes from favorite son to now being a responsible slave over everything in your slave owner's home. And still a slave. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Now, you're thinking everything's going great, right? Everything's going great. Oh, boy. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. So he's, he's the slave, and all of a sudden here comes the master's wife, and the way it, in the Hebrew, it's really stronger. It's almost like she's commanding him. Like, she's using her position and her power to say, you will have a physical relationship with me. She's not really giving him a, it's not like, would you like to? It's more of like, you will. Now, on one hand, from a human perspective, you could be like, well, I hate my slave owner, so why do I care? Right? So on one hand, you could see that there could be a desire to just do the wrong thing. She continues day after day trying to get him to engage in a physical relationship with her. He refuses. He refuses. One day he's in the house. She tries again and he takes off running. He runs and you're like, whoa, Joseph, he, he still cares about God and still does about doing the right thing even when he's a slave. And you're like, way to go, Joseph. Right? That's awesome. He's so godly. And then what happens? He gets accused of doing something to the master's wife. And he ends up where? In prison. Is that not crazy to you? He's the favorite son. Now where he is? He went from favored slave to now He's in prison. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, and he's falsely accused. How bad can things be? Right? Now, he's in, 
the jail, all right, and we could go, he's in prison. These people start having dreams. All these things start, you know, happening here. And he tells them, hey, okay, look, if you want me to interpret your dream, I just got a request. Don't forget about me, right? Help me get out of prison. So that at least, why do I love that part of the story? Because it shows Joseph, because sometimes we pick, you know, there's Joseph walking around with a halo and he's just sitting in prison going, I love it here. Now this shows that he wants out. He probably wants out to go where? Back home. So he's like, guys, don't forget me. And what do they do? He interprets their dreams and guess what happens? I think I heard someone say, yeah, nothing, nothing for Joseph. In fact, if you look at, uh, look at verse uh, 23 of chapter 40. I was going to look at some other verses because I've got so many in my notes, but that's okay. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him or forgot him. Now, he goes from the favorite son to being what? Forgotten in prison. Completely forgotten in prison. Now, there's more we could read, but I want to transition now from the story to what we can do with this, okay? All right, because this is important. Now, let's just try to, listen. now I know it's hard to do this, but try to put yourself in this situation, okay? You were the favorite, and now you're, you, you're a forgotten prisoner. And let me tell you, he's, it's probably not a great prison. Okay, we're not talking the modern prison reform system. We're talking a prison in Egypt for a man accused of physically having relations against her will of his master's wife. That's not a good situation to be in. So I doubt that there's a lot of comfort there. So, because we can, we can sanitize it. Sometimes we take the Bible and we make it, turn it into a Disney version. There's no Disney version of this. This is horrible and ugly. Now, how would you, uh, where would you be in your spiritual life at this point? I, I, I would have some time to talk to God, but I don't think my conversations would be so good. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I would be mad. I'd be grumbling, complaining, upset, going, you gave me a dream and this is where I am. This is not, I'm falsely accused. You have abandoned me. You don't care about me. And then I would be like, I'm going to get to my brothers. I'm going to kill every single one of them. I'm going to be, I'm, I would be furious. I'd be angry. I'd be upset. I'd be mad at the whole world. I'd be mad at every Egyptian. I'd be mad at the Ishmaelites. I'd be mad at all of my brothers. I'd be mad at everyone. I'd be like, forget the whole world. Right? That's, that's where I would be. Okay, you can all look at me more spiritual, but that's where I would be. So, here's the solution. Here's the question I should say. What's the biblical solution to finding yourself forgotten in prison? Falsely accused, and your brothers want you dead. Now, we could say, well, okay. The church answer would be would probably be all the things you're not supposed to do, right? That's usually the church answer. Don't do don't do what? Don't be filled with hate. Make sure you forgive. And we would go through I am not in any way saying those things are not true. I'm saying that that just giving someone a list of what they can and can't do typically is not super helpful in this particular situation, right? Someone comes to me and goes, Pastor, you're not going to believe what my family did to me. Well, you know, here's a list of rules. Do this and don't do that. Thank you, Pastor. That really helped me a lot. Okay, You're probably going to be like, I don't want a list of rules. Because the list of rules are of no assistance if you forget one major, absolutely critical aspect to this entire story that seems to indicate, it kind of indicates maybe why Joseph handles this in such a good way because I wouldn't handle it the way Joseph handles this. And we're going to see how Joseph handles it by the time we're done. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to just walk us through some steps here. All right. Here's step number one. And this is the only step I really care about. All right. The other ones I want, I've got six. All right. Now I know that's, that's dangerous, but I'm going to go through these as quickly as I can. All right. How do we handle this? Number one. God awareness 
over being imprisoned by your circumstances. God awareness. Now, this is a double-edged sword. All right? This is a double-edged sword. Because you can be so aware of God that it can lead to bitterness. Yes? But this is a God awareness that understands what? God's sovereign control. That life is not about your purpose, but God's purpose. And that your life is not about your comfort, your rights, but about God's glory. See how this ties in with Sunday school? This is an awareness about God. It's hard to have that awareness because in some cases, the more awareness you have of God, the more frustrated you may become with God. But it's an understanding that that this is not just happening by random chance. This is just not happening because of bad people that somehow God is involved in it for his purpose and his glory. Now remember, everyone looks at life either from a theistic point of view or an atheistic point of view, right? An atheistic point of view would just be like, well, bad things happen. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. Okay, yeah, that's one way to look at it if you want. I mean, that's great. Or you can look at it going, there's got to be a... Per- now, Now, both of them have philosophical issues because saying God is involved in it may be, make you start questioning God. But you'll see why, how to handle this in just a minute. All right, so let's, let's just look at a, a, some, a number of scriptures here to try to help you understand this, all right? Just, just let's look at a couple of things. Go to uh, Genesis 45. This is absolutely crazy here. Genesis 45. A lot has happened at this point. Joseph is now basically almost like the second in charge in Egypt, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of now made it to the top. He's made it through these horrible circumstances. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them he, uh, that stood by him. He cried, caused every man to go away from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. His brothers have had to come back to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And now Joseph sees his brothers and he's going to reveal himself to them. And he cries. He's emotional here. He's, I mean, there's some emotion here. Let's not think that this is just some easy thing. But here's what's amazing. Let's read this, okay? And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. You think they're troubled? Probably scared to death here. They're like, okay, what is going on? But please, isn't it horrible to hear? He's weeping, wanting to know if his father is alive. That's how bad this situation has been for him. He doesn't even know if his father's alive. You can't ignore the, the, the emotion here. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. That is... Do you understand how critical that is? If you see God at work in every circumstance, then you're not imprisoned by the circumstance. If you forget God in the circumstance, the circumstance becomes your prisoner. Your circumstance becomes your pit. Your circumstance becomes the things that controls you. But if you see that God, I I don't even know how I could say those words, but he's like, hey, don't even blame yourselves. I'd be like, whoa, I've got some blame to pass around here, right? No, no, no. He, He ignores his brother's actions because he knows who is sovereign above all of those actions. Now, let me make it very clear. This sounds good in church. It doesn't always work good in everyday life because that is hard to comprehend sometimes, yes? 
It's hard for me to comprehend that all the things that happened to me growing up in my messed up home, I mean, I could tell horrible stories. I don't want to go through those horrible stories, but somehow God knew what was happening, involved, decreed. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around it, but at least makes me understand there was a purpose in it. Doesn't mean, now listen, we always want to make that purpose like, it's going to make me better. It's for God's glory. Joseph sees God in it all. All through it. Let's look at a couple more scriptures. I'm going to go as quickly as I can here. All right? Go to Genesis 39 too. Because now when you see it this way, you can now you see all of these phrases for what they are. Genesis 39 2. And the Lord was with Joseph. Go to uh, Genesis 39, verse 21, I believe. Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. All right, this is the idea that when you get to the end and then you go back and read these phrases, now they make sense. The narrator is telling us, the writer is telling us the spiritual reality behind what's going on. Why is everything happening? Simple answer. Why is everything happening that we read in Genesis 37 to 50? God. Joseph seemed to understand it's God. Like he sees himself favorite son in a pit and he, and somehow in his mind, well, I must be in this pit because God. So what do I do when I'm in a pit? If God put me here, serve God, glorify God. If I'm in prison, what do I do? Serve God and glorify God. If I'm falsely accused and put in prison, what do I do? Serve God. If I am forgotten in prison, if I'm a slave, Joseph never looks to get out of the circumstance. He looks to serve God within the circumstance. Modern church takes God and says, hey, look, become a Christian. Here's God. He'll get you out of all of your bad circumstances. That's the modern church approach. God is a tool to get you the life you want. God isn't a tool to give you the life you want. You were created by him for him. He wasn't created for you. It's almost like in psychology, they constantly will say, the reason many people believe in God is because they need a psychological crutch in which to understand life. And I've always, when I, when I, whenever I took psychology in college, I would always want to say, have you ever read the Bible? Because I don't find a psychological crutch with God. I find some psychological problems. God is not a crutch to help you. No, what we read is God is sovereign and I'm made by him for him. But see, if if I'm aware of God in everything, then guess what I'm doing? I'm not looking for God to get me out of it. I'm looking to serve God in it. See, we, we, you know how this would work. If you're on, on Facebook or any social media and, you're, and you start going, man, this is happening to me. My brothers are trying to kill me. This is happening to me. And then you would get some Christian going, all things work together for good. God's going to fix all of your problems. Where one door closes and a window opens, like all the little cliches, and you're just like, oh, just stop talking. Okay. Okay. Just pray and have faith. It's all going to work out. Now, I understand that their intentions are good. Okay, let me under, their intentions are good. But, I mean, I just know when I was standing at the grave of my mom, all the crazy things people said, I'm like, what? Just stop talking to me, please. Just stop. Just stop. It's horrible, okay? The, the situation is you have to see that God is in it, and he may not be the path out of it, but he is the purpose in it. Everybody hear what I just said? You have to see God in it. He may not be the path out of it. He is the purpose within it. So in your circumstance, what is your responsibility? Serve God and glorify him. Joseph wasn't saying, get me out of prison. Now he tried, but he, from, from God's perspective, he just seemed to do what? Accept whatever the situation was. But, but true. I mean, he had a lot of authority, but he was still a 
Yeah, he was still, still, he was still under the control of someone else, but he served God in it. Serve God in it. That, you have to have that awareness. It's just, when you read those verses, it's so important. And then look at Genesis 50 to really, this is really m- makes it powerful here. We all know this is the famous verse, right? Everybody knows Genesis 50, verse 20. Verse 19, Genesis 50, verse 19. If I said Joseph chapter 50, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? Joseph never forgets the place. He's not God. God is God. In your life, never forget your place. You're not God. God is God. You, in whatever circumstances you find yourself, serve God in the... Don't look to God to get you out of it. Look to God as the purpose for it, and you serve Him within it. When I was a teenager, and, I, and, I, and my mom was in the hospital, and you know, for all practical purposes, she was dead, I still was praying that there was some way, you know, because God is all-powerful. I wanted God to fix the situation. God may fix a situation, but even if he doesn't fix the situation, my job is to serve him. God is not just simply like, you know, break in case of emergency and say, okay, God, here, come on, come on, now I need you, do something. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But what does he say in the next verse, the very famous verse? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. He, see, he sees God in it. That's what I love about Job. After everything happens to Job, right? There's death, there's destruction. He rips his clothes. He throws sackcloth and ashes. And he's just, what does he say? God gives. God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He and our way of thinking would be like, Job, Satan is out to get you. Job understood God, in a sense, is out to get me because God wasn't the one in charge of the whole situation. You've got to see God in it. Is it always easy to do so? I want to make sure you understand this. This is a double-edged sword. It can create bitterness, but you've got to look at it in a submissive way, saying, God, not me. Right? Now I'm going to go through the last ones. We aren't going to have time to look up all the scriptures. Just write these down. You ready? So God awareness over being imprisoned by your circumstances. God awareness over being imprisoned by your circumstances. Right? Next, we have to have love over bitterness. The Bible warns us in Hebrews 12 about the dangers of bitterness, Right? Bitterness will, it's like a root and it will just spring forth and just eat at you and destroy every aspect of your life. You cannot allow bitterness to do so. And trust me, it's hard not to be bitter when bad things happen. After I, one of the last things I had to do before I left the, the, uh, the, the hospital after I tried to kill myself, being in a psych ward for eight weeks, one of the last things I had to do is write a letter to my mom. And I had to go to the Buffalo Gap Cemetery and read a letter to my mom. And guess what that letter was filled with? Oh, there was some bitterness. I mean, because she did some messed up stuff to me. Messed up. Have you ever been tied up in a closet and burned with a curling iron? That's, a, that's hard to get over when your mom does it to you. Right? That's some messed up stuff. Right? That can mess you up. But you know what? We have to replace bitterness. Love has to be over that bitterness. Now, I'm not saying I ever have it figured out. But the Bible said that I have to love who? This hardest thing in the Bible, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemy. Man, it's hard enough to love people I like. Oh, come on. All right? I mean, how quickly we get upset with people we love, right? What are you doing? Right? We get upset over it. I mean, we, you, some of you may have the problem driving home from church, right? You'll get in a fight with each other on the way home, right? Or at church, okay, right? Loving your enemy is hard. Now listen, you can't love your enemy until you have a God awareness that you see God in your enemy. What do I mean see God in your enemy? 
Every person is created in the image of God. You know, when I see people, sometimes I don't see the image of God. Oh, come on. You know, you, maybe even people you work with, you go, ah, man, that, oh, I hate that person. That person drives me crazy. I don't see it. Oh, there's the image of God, an eternal soul. I'm like, that's a jerk. I can't stand that person. Man. I mean, I've worked with people. I'm like, man, if I, I, I'm in the military. If I can get orders, I don't care if they send me. They can send me to the middle of the desert. Any place is better than working with this guy. Guess why I wasn't seeing the image of God? Right? It's hard to see the image of God in someone who has hurt you. It's hard to see the image of God, but it's not about releasing them from their wrong. It's about my job is to love even my enemy because God loved his enemies because he loved you. And if he can love you, I think we can find a way to love others, not because we can, but because God has loved us. You've got to love, you've got to replace bitterness with love. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not, oh, it's not easy. I struggle every day. You say, well, you wrote that letter to your mom. Was everything great? It's been a lot of years and I still struggle. My sister, who massive, was a massive drug addict, um, basically almost destroyed her life with heroin and meth and ended up basically homeless in Michigan somewhere. Well, over the last couple of months, she's made a profession of faith. She's gotten baptized. Now she's going to AA meetings and trying to get clean, praise God. But she just called me the other night saying, hey, I'm in that step. I got to write a letter to our parents. And she's asking me what to do. And I'm like, there's no easy answer here. And so she's writing the letter in her mind that she can find some answer for it. She can, she can fix it. I'm like, no, you write it to get it out of you. You put it on the paper and you burn it. You got to get it out of you because if you keep it in you, it's going to eat you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to create bitterness. Now, I didn't go into you need to love because that's, she's just got to get it out of her first. But hopefully at some point she can see that in, in that messed up life that we lived, which we could write books about and make a network special on, it's a crazy stories. God was somehow involved in all of it. I don't understand that. Sometimes it can make me bitter. Because I can look at like the Dantzler family. I'm like, why couldn't I have been Emma or Lydia? I mean, man, the worst thing they get is they're out of oatmeal cookies or something. I mean, you know, why couldn't I be, grow up in that kind of family? I mean, you know, I, does Stephen even raise his voice? I don't even know if it's humanly possible. Girls, I'm really getting angry at you, right? Okay, I mean, like, whoa, calm down, Stephen. Okay, okay you're frightening me, right? Okay, like, why, why, you know, why, why did they get that and I didn't? Am I ever going to get an answer? But I know that God is the purpose in it. Now, did I serve God in it as a teenager? Oh, no, 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 no. Even as a Christian teenager, I didn't serve God in it. I didn't see God as the purpose. I saw God as the cause of it and got upset and got mad and got angry. We've got to replace that bitterness with love. I'm not saying it's easy. Look, I don't know, I don't know everyone in here. I don't know what you've gone through. I'm by no means saying, just love them. It's simple. No, I'm just saying God tells you to love your enemy. I have a hard time with that. And I know in our culture today, even within the church, we have our political enemies and we sometimes don't respond to them in love and we don't respond to them as seeing them in the image of God. We just see their politics. We see, and we got to get past seeing people based off those external things. We got to see that they're creating the image of God and we're to love even our enemy. That's not easy to do. Number three, we have, to rep- we have to have forgiveness over hatred. Forgiveness over hatred. What does Jesus say? How many times do you forgive? 70 times 7. I used to try to write down that how many times I'd forgiven and thinking, okay, I've done it, for- I've done it that many times. I'm good to go. Then, I kinda, then someone kind of explained to me, no, that's just saying you keep forgiving. And I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of garbage. I was hoping I was getting to the limit, okay? Because I, I was saving up a whole bunch of stuff, okay? I was like, oh, you, that's it! I was going to call them on the phone going, you're over the limit! I'm coming for you now, okay? You better get your gun because I'm on my way, okay? But, and I, I know, but I, I kind of had to realize that's not the way it's supposed to work, all right? But you've got to replace the hatred with forgiveness. Is it easy? I, I'm telling you, what's the key to all of this? The God awareness, 
right? And then you've got to do good over evil. How do we respond to evil? Romans chapter 12. How do you respond with evil? Good. When the world comes against the church and they're doing horrible things to us, how do we respond? By doing good to them. Not yelling and screaming and fighting and protesting. And we, we do good to the world that wants to do evil to us. I know that's a forgotten concept. It's in Romans 12. It's still there. Okay. If anybody has forgotten it. And then the last two. God's glory over self. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You've got to focus on God's glory over yourself. What's most important in life? God's glory, not your happiness. What's most important in life? God's glory, not your comfort. Now, I know that's easy for me to say, but guess what I want every day? When my wife ticks me off, I, I don't like, how can I glorify God in this situation? I'm like, how? What are you doing? Oh, come on. Yeah, I did the same thing when your kids irritate you. How could I glorify God in this situation? Come here, son, daughter. You've really irritated me, but I'm going to glorify God in this situation. God put you in my life for a reason. Okay? Right? <laughs> it's, it's not easy to do, right? Your first thought is not, how can I glorify God? Your first thought is, why are you doing something that irritates me? And then the last one, which is the, most, the hardest one. Self-denial over self-rights. Matthew 16, 24. The whole Christian life is summarized in three very basic rules. That is, deny self, die to self, and stop following self. Self-denial over self-rights. We always worry about our rights, Yes? Our rights, our rights. I don't know how many times I've heard over the last few years Christians talking about our rights, our rights, our rights, our rights. The Bible says, die to self, deny self, stop following. The Bible doesn't talk about your rights. You die to self. Now you just, please note, when you're dead to self, it's hard for your wife to irritate you. We, we can all get in the car. We can go down this road about two miles. There's a cemetery on the right. We can do this. I'll, I'll videotape it for YouTube. Y'all run through the cemetery trying to irritate everyone. Call them names. Say whatever. Anybody going to get irritated in that cemetery? Maybe the people who live right next to the cemetery go, what are these crazy people doing? Because they're dead. When we're dead to self, circumstance can't bother me because I'm dead to self. I'm aware of God, not self. Family can't irritate me. You're, you're trying to irritate a dead person. That's the next time my wife bothers me. I'm going to say, you're trying to bother a dead person. I'm not moved by you. Right? And then I'll walk away going, mm, I made her, I looked more spiritual than she did. Yeah. Then I'll try to use my spirituality to show you, like, hey, woman, see, I'm the more spiritual one here. So yeah, I'll even try to use that because then we clothe everything in a robe of self-righteousness. Okay, that's a whole different sermon. But you understand, just, Joseph died to self, denied self. He wasn't following self. He was more aware of God. He didn't see God as the way out. He saw, saw God as the purpose for it, and he served and glorified God in the midst of it. Is any of this easy? No. Are we all going to fail? Yes. That's why my salvation is not based on how well I carry this out. It's based on how perfectly Christ carried it out, because he was the favorite son who was killed by his own brethren. But not his will, God's will. And he said, hey, I came to glorify my father. That is the answer to the situation. We all have to struggle together with it. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Not a deep message, nothing theological, just very simple and straightforward. But I pray that when we leave here this week, we talk about it all week. We struggle with it. We pray about it because these are such important lessons that we fall so short of. And we thank you that because we fall short, you sent your son to die for us so that we could be saved by a perfection and a righteousness that which we will never actually carry out. Because without that, 
we would be condemned. And we are thankful that because of that mercy and that grace, we are now a son of God and co-heirs with Christ. Not because we deserve it, but because of mercy and grace. Let us never forget that and never take it for granted. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...